Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Do you remember the Encyclopedia Britannica? Do you remember encyclopedias? Do you remember, like, people actually, like, coming to sell sets of encyclopedias? Like, do you remember this, like, reality of history? Paul Perot, you're you're here with me right now. Do you remember encyclopedias? Oh, yeah. My uh, parents <laughs> made sure we were well-versed in things like that, had that. We had a full set of world book encyclopedias. A world book. World, world book. book. I was trying to think of the other one. Yes, yeah, thank you. Book. All right, so um, do you still have a set of World Book or um, or Encyclopedia Britannica? Like this, this is uh, something worth conversation, worthy of conversation. So, in much the same way that Time Magazine now just calls itself Time, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica now just calls itself Britannica, and it's actually now Britannica dot com. Not this will not surprise anyone, right? And six days ago. Uh, they added an entry, and you say to yourself, "Well, I mean, you know, in the in the in the day of the internet, <laughs> in the reality of of Wikipedia, um, what would find its way afresh into Britannica or Britannica dot com?" Uh, well, the new entry is for citizen journalism, and the entry actually surveys how citizen journalism, which, by the way, just means like anyone with a smartphone who knows how to post a video to the Internet um, or any number of social media sites. Like that's what constitutes a citizen journalist today is a person with a phone um, that has a camera on it. So Britannica then surveys like how citizen journalism has developed over time. And they note that it's not a particularly new thing. um, And and they they chronicle citizen journalism in particular, um, through the course of American history. So it says, in America, citizen journalism dates back to the birth uh, of the United States when activist patriots printed pamphlets explaining uh, why they supported the colony's independence from Britain. And one of the most famous and influential of those citizen journalists was Thomas Paine. It goes on to talk about uh, his pamphlet, Common Sense, um, which outlined why the 13 colonies should overthrow British rule. Um, and they say such publications went a long way toward informing public opinion. So they are saying citizen journalism here is is certainly opinion journalism. So I think that's important. It's viewpoint journalism for sure. Um, but that makes sense because if you are um, observing something that's taking place in real time, then you uh, you have a viewpoint of that, and you are actually sharing your viewpoint as a as a person present, as an eyewitness. So the the Britannica piece on citizen journalism goes on to say that during the American Civil War, diaries kept by soldiers and civilians provided unique insights into understanding um, the events that were taking place that people were witnessing. 
Think of such diaries as primitive blogs, says Britannica.com. Most of these first-person accounts were not intended for public viewing, um, but many um, in- include important informational um, historical facts. And so they have been an important supplement to um, what was recorded in more mainstream newspapers and magazines of the day. And then it talks about um, how fiction uh, can also be used as a reporting device and that that fiction that is historical fiction, here they're talking about Upton Sinclair's 1906 novel, The Jungle, which was based on six months of investigative research um, and reporting on labor and sanitation conditions within Um, America's meatpacking industry in particular. And so citizen journalism, that is uh, how they chronicle uh, its advent. And so I would like for us to just apply these categories for a moment to what we know about the people who whose hands were used to write what we uh, receive as the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. I mean, yes, it is the Word of God, and authoritatively so. But people were the quote-unquote citizen journalists who wrote it. Journals and histories and commentary, viewpoint, eyewitnesses, right? Citizen journalism, those who recorded and wrote down and passed along and protected and preserved over centuries the first-hand accounts the testimonies of those who encountered God, that we might know of his character and his ways. These are people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and, yes, citizens of various kingdoms of this world. It is journalism over space and time. Um, So I was thinking, um, what might it look like for you and I as citizens of the kingdom of heaven to be reporting as citizens of this day and time on what we see in terms of the character and the ways of God unfolding in the world around us. The canon of Scripture is closed, yes, but the testimony of God's people continues. And so when and where have you encountered God, and how have you recorded that and shared those glory stories with others? Where do you see evidence of God's presence and power and ways? Are you journaling those things? As a citizen journalist, citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and yes, a citizen of a particular kingdom of this world, how are you recording and telling or broadcasting the stories of the good news of God's presence and power at work in the world today? How might um, your public testimony, your citizen journalism, um, how might it change the perception of others about the presence and power of God in the world today? Our friend Brian uh, Loritz is going to join us next. He is a pastor and author of The Offensive Church, or The Offensive Church, depending on how you you read it. Um, We talked the last time uh, and started to touch on a topic of the tension, the tension that we live in as Christians, the tension of grace and truth. And so, we thought we'd have Brian back and continue that conversation. What does it look, uh, what does it look like? to live out of love, not just out of tolerance. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Pastor Brian Loritz is back with us today. Uh, The book that we have been talking about with him 
over um, a couple of months is the offensive church or the offensive church, depending on how you read it, breaking the cycle of ethnic disunity. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Carmen. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So the last time we talked, we we sort of touched on, we tip, we we put our toe in um, this tension, this living in the tension of grace and truth. Um, and you started talking about what it looks like to live out of love, not just out of tolerance. And I thought that is some soil we should further till. So can you um, begin to walk us into this conversation about what it looks like to live in the tension of grace and truth? What are they and why is there tension for us um, as Christians uh, living living at this knife's edge, really, of grace and truth? Yeah, you know, in, in the book of John, in fact, John chapter 1, when John opens up and is just talking about his experience with Jesus, he says, when I saw Jesus, I saw a man full of grace and truth. And, um, you know, the visual of a rubber band comes to mind when I think of that. You know, if the power of a rubber band is seen in its tension when you when you take both ends and you stretch them. And I think that's the power of Christianity, where there's this grace truth thing. And we're, we're, to, we're to hold on to both of those really tightly. So grace without truth is compromise. Truth without grace is condemnation. So we need to live, we just need to live in that tension. And that's what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And one of the barometers to know that I'm living in that tension is that there are times when I catch it from both sides. I think there are times when I live in the tension of grace and truth where those who were just kind of all truth, and I put that in quotes, um, look at me and say, man, it just feels like you're being you're being compromising. And then those who are just everything's about grace. And likewise, I put that in quotes because that's a very distorted, unbiblical kind of concept of grace. Look at me as kind of being condemning and legalistic. So I think one of the indicator lights that that tells you that I'm living that way is that I'm catching it from both sides. The, the last thing I'll say in answer to your question is I think we also have to, to look at Jesus and his model of acceptance versus approval. So, you know, when he sits down with uh, the woman who's caught in adultery, who is actually dragged to him as he's teaching in the temple, uh, Jesus Christ accepts her. Uh, but he also does not approve of her behavior. I mean, he actually mm-hmm. says to her, go in peace and sin no more. So what does it look like to live a life? And I think this is the other indicator light, full of grace and truth. It means that those who have made a mess of their life because they see the grace of Christ in me, um, they are attracted to me. They come to me like the prostitute comes to Jesus at the uh, at the party or his uh, the accusation of him eating with sinners and tax collectors. But at the same time, I, I do speak loving truth to them and I call their behavior what it is, which is sin. I think that, um, Brian, even even just helping me think about grace without truth as compromise or truth without grace as you had a good word, what I wrote down was condemnation. Yeah, I put condemnatory legalism, which seemed way too long. Um, so I'm going to, uh, yeah, condemnation. Um, just just having those hooks to hang my thoughts on is really helpful. So first of all, thank you for that. Um, reminding us that uh, 
that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Um, and that there are times that when the world squeezes me, it becomes evident that I am full of something else, right? Everybody's full of something. Yes. Um, yes. What is it? What is it? What does it look like for me to be Christ in the, like for the spirit of Christ to not just be inhabiting me, you know, not just inhabiting my thoughts, um, but actually filling me to the full of grace and truth. Um, and you can't separate them back out. Like they become this admixture inside the Christian um, where people get both. They get a full measure of grace and they get a full measure of truth from us if we're if we're being honest to Christ. Um, and, right. and that will bring um, criticism from people who are who just want one and not the other. Right. And what I'll say to that, Carmen, is I even love the order of it. John says mm-hmm. when I. I saw Jesus, I saw a man full of grace and truth. My experience, Carmen, is people will not often hear the truth of the gospel until they first experience the grace of the gospel lived out through your life to them. So, for example, quick example, my wife and I, um, one of our closest friends, we had befriended um, this lesbian couple uh, who had a son who played on the same AAU basketball team. Uh, with with our son. And so we just invited them over for dinner and they kept coming over uh, over a series of dinners um, all that fall season. And a couple months later, they finally got around to asking me, <laughs> what do you do for a living? Right. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Deep breath. Uh, I'm a pastor. And, you know, I tell people about how to find true meaning, value and significance in life, which is through Jesus Christ. One of them immediately got up from the table in disgust and said, I heard her mumble, that's not what I was expecting. Now, she eventually came back to the table. We continued the dinner and, you know, uh, the relationship deepened. But what shocked her is that I did not fit the caricature of Christianity she had in my mind because she had experienced such hospitality, such grace, such kindness from my wife and I. Um, first of all, I love that it's, you know, what she experienced was surprise and ultimately delight, but you were a contradiction. Um, you, there was a, there was an immediate conflict um, that arose within her. It's interesting right. that, um, first of all, I love the way that you describe being a pastor. Um, that you help people find value, meaning, and significance in Jesus. Like that is, wow, that is a wonderful, wonderful way of describing to somebody what a pastor does or who a pastor is. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and and let me also say, um, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. And so we're grateful for you. Thank you, Carmen. We're, we're, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for um for pastors of of all varieties and uh, and types serving all kinds of churches and Christian ministries. And so if you're listening right now and you're a pastor, thank you. And if you're listening right now and you haven't yet um, told your pastor that you appreciate them, this is a great um, this is a great time to do that. We're going to take a very, very brief um, pause. Um, maybe when we come back, Brian, we could we could address the question um, of of like, how we apply this, this full measure of grace and truth, um, not 
not compromising one or the other. Like how how do we deliver? How do we live in um, this full measure of grace and truth when we are applying it to maybe one particular challenging um, issue of the day? And so you've just talked about you know how you can demonstrate that through hospitality and you know sort of over the course of relationship um, potentially win the right to to talk about truth, but grace is offered. Um, really as the uh, as as the doorway or the entry point to that. Maybe we could apply this to race or politics or some other uh, issue of the day. Could we do that? Could we try that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Fantastic. We're talking with Pastor Brian Loritz, author of The Offensive or Offensive Church, depending on how you read it. Um, and today we're talking about living in the tension of grace and truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And so his followers, you and I, are um, are entering into the conversations of the day full of grace and full of truth, both requirements um, for us not not to compromise either. So how do we live in that and walk in that? We'll continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right, let's continue this conversation about the tension we experience between grace and truth. We experience it in our own lives, and we certainly experience it in our relationships with others. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Um, we are to be gracious in our speech, Colossians 4, 6, and loving in our actions. Uh, maybe Luke 10 would be a place you could look to for that. So, Brian, when we, um, when we think about uh, and consider how we are going to be full, fully full of both grace and truth. And we're going to bring that to bear on maybe a difficult topic um, that we experience in our relationships today. So that might be an issue of, of, of identity or sexuality or lifestyle. It might be um, on a topic of race or politics. I mean, there's a host of, of places or spaces where we could bring this conversation to bear. So why don't you pick one? Yeah. Grace is meant to be lived out within the context of relationship, right? That's, the the Bible knows nothing of grace being confined to propositional truth. Mm. Um, it's it, the very idea of grace. The very idea of mercy is that it restores relationship. In fact, I would say you cannot have relationship without grace. Um, and so that's what it means to, to be a Christian. So I think in my own heart, um, I cannot give what I have not received. And sure, in Christ, positionally, I have received grace. But I think it's a day-to-day uh, posture in my own life as I just come before the Lord in prayer, come before the Lord uh, in intimacy. And day-to-day, I just need to be saturated. My own heart, my own soul needs to be saturated with grace. Um, and therefore, now I'm set up to to give that grace to others. And I think the primary way in which we display it, no matter what you're talking about, someone who's 
different than me politically. Uh, maybe a family member, an in-law, a sibling that gets on my last nerve, someone who's wronged me. Um, I, I think the way that that plays out is through acts of hospitality. It's it's the whole setting of hospitality. So I'll go back to our friends in the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, on the one hand, the reason why, why this friend of mine that I referenced, the reason why she was shocked, she had very good reason to be shocked. And that is Christians for decades had really presented themselves as and postured themselves as being hostile to that community, which is out of bounds with the example Christ set for us, right? And mm-hmm. so she's over my house, there's hospitality, we're eating food. But again, the tension of grace and truth, about a year later, her and her partner asked me to do their, their marriage ceremony. And at that moment, I had to take a deep breath and say, you know, I love you. And we've had all kinds of wonderful moments together, but am I allowed to disagree with you without being called a bigot, right? Because I think one of the lies of tolerance, one of the lies of our ages is that tolerance has come to mean you have to agree with everything in order for me to feel, and I put it in quotes, loved. Well, those people must not have children (laughs) because (laughs) I love my kids dearly. And at the same time, as I've got young adult kids, I watch them make decisions that I profoundly disagree with. So I can love you and disagree profoundly with you at the same time. And they received it. They received it and the relationship kept moving because I held those two things in tension and because our grace account was so full of those moments of relationship and hospitality. I love this idea of filling my my grace account with someone else um, in advance of of needing to uh, or being compelled to or nudged to speak the truth. I, I, that is, um, it, it, it takes me back to the encounter of Jesus. Um, we, we described this story as the woman called it, caught in adultery. I like to think of it as the, you know, the woman who's actually like rescued and recovered and redeemed from a horribly sexually broken, uh, social situation. Like, you know, I, I know yeah, she's yeah. caught, she's, I, 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 don't, I don't like that she's referred to as the woman caught in adultery, I guess is what I'm saying. But it's, yeah. I refer to the story that way because we all immediately recognize it. But it, the, Jesus fills the grace account with her. He yeah. fills the grace account with her, as you, the, in your words there. Um, but then he speaks the truth. It's not that yeah. he's, he's not withholding the truth, but he's, he is absolutely filling the grace account um, before uh, he speaks the truth. It, it and and I think that giving people a full measure of grace, like a full measure of grace, I can only do that. And you've you've articulated this so beautifully. I can only do that if every single day I am going to that love well, and I am and I right. am saturating my life. I am soaking my life in the grace that I know I need. That's it. That's it. Absolutely. That's so good. Um, all right. We um we have like one minute, but you know, I'm so I'm tempted to not start a whole new conversation. Um, but could I ask you to do this? Um yeah. we have a, a a friend on the text line who said who said maybe um Brian could just pray with us about the people who are in our lives um who we know need a full measure of grace, but to whom it is really hard to extend it. Absolutely. I'd love to pray, Carmen. Thank you. 
Father, in these divided times, and it seems as if everywhere we look, there are um, dividing walls of hostility that you tore down that are being resurrected, whether it's political division, racial division, um, whatever it may be, ideological, Lord God. God, you said um, that by this will all people know that we are your your true followers, your disciples. It's by the love that we have for one another. God, I pray that the body of Christ in this moment would rise up, that we would be people who love each other profoundly, not just people who tolerate one another, that's such a low ethic, but people who genuinely love one another uh, and accept and receive people right where they are, because that's the good news of Jesus Christ. You accept and receive us right where we are, yet by your spirit, you don't leave us right where we are. So I pray for that, Lord God. I pray for that even as we enter into a, 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 an election season, Lord God. I, I pray, Father God, that that the rhetoric of Christians on social media and how we treat each other, Lord God, it would tell the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would be that fragrant aroma. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, uh, Brian. I, I genuinely, uh, genuinely appreciate the conversation um, and your willingness to continue it. We, uh, we thank really, you, Carmen. Always a joy to so be much. with you. Yeah, likewise. Okay, so when I was uh, traveling in, uh, in Africa on a mission trip, this is a number of years ago now, um, I can't really remember um, what led our, our friend to look at us, uh, the group of Americans, and say, why, why, why are you carrying so many things? And I think that was the first time that I realized, like, she had like a small bag uh, in which she really had everything that she needed for, you know, for the day, probably for the week. And we had bags upon bags upon bags. Like, uh, it was ridiculous when I just took this pause right then and looked at it and realized, like, we were we were encumbering the mission with all of our stuff. And and we just all paused and and she looked at us and said, in our in our culture, we call it carbondu, carbondu, and I'm like, okay, carbondu. I'm going to remember this term. The carbondu is all the baggage, all the physical, emotional, spiritual baggage we carry with us that actually keeps us from being able, being free to do all the ministry that God sets before us to do in a lifetime. And this came to mind when I saw Ike Miller's book, Good Baggage, um, How Your Difficult Childhood Prepared You for Healthy Relationships. Uh, and what we're going to talk about is the carbondu, right, the baggage that we have from childhood, and how it can be converted from a burden into a blessing. So check your carbondu for just a moment, um, and then get ready for it to be converted into good baggage. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. It's a joy to welcome Ike Miller to Mornings with Carmen. He is uh, a husband, a dad, a pastor, um, and an author. The book is Good Baggage, How Your Difficult Childhood Prepared You for healthy relationships. Ike, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, it's so good to be on with you. Thank you for having me. So I want to start in um, maybe what might feel like an unusual place, but um, <laughs> it's before the first page of the book. 
Um, And I want to start with this. Isaac, Cohen, and Sadie. This work I do for you. Um, Who are Isaac, Cohen, and Sadie? What is this work? And what does it mean to be doing this work for them? Yeah, so Isaac, Cohen, and Sadie are my children. Isaac is 11, Cohen is 8, and Sadie is 5. And as I thought through dedicating this book, obviously there's a lot in it that is work that I'm doing for my wife in terms of my own healing work and relational repair work. Um, But really, as a book about, you know, our difficult childhoods, I wanted to do this work so that my children didn't have to, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I I believe that there's good stuff, uh, obviously, in the book that I talk about that comes out of what I experienced. But uh, I obviously don't want them to experience some of the pain that I did. So I'm doing a lot of the work that I talk about in the book for them. I wanted to start there because um, it is one thing to have childhood experiences and to look back at the people who um, were uh, a part of those experiences and and forget that you're now a husband and a father and you do this work um, out of a father's love. And yeah. that is something that you have to receive and know as a child of God um, mm. and, and, and apply it. And so I just wanted to make that observation because that is really what's going on here. Um, mm. as, as, a, as a child of God, you are now reviewing, looking back mm-hmm. at um, the experiences that you had mm-hmm. as a child in relationships and, and finding value. That's really what you're doing. You're like, you, you are redeeming and finding value in a lot of brokenness. And so can you talk yeah. uh, a little bit about that? Tell, tell enough of your own story that people mm-hmm. can understand, um, you know, how, how you're redeeming, how God is redeeming what happened yeah. in the past uh, to really provide a pathway forward today. Yeah. So my story, just briefly, my father had an alcohol use disorder, and that caused all kinds of brokenness in our family. Obviously, as many who grew up in that context have experienced, um, it led to my parents' divorce. It led to brokenness in my relationship with him. And then uh, as I have worked through the impact of that, uh, I think, you know, I talk about throughout the book, just one of the things that it gave me was this intense passion and motivation to see my relationships go differently than what I saw in my childhood. And so some of the things that God is redeeming is I saw how pride could get in the way of us seeking out the healing that we needed, seeking out the help that we needed. And so now I see in my own marriage in those moments where I am tempted to let my ego and my pride get in the way of repairing the relationship and healing it, I say no. I say I want to see my relationships go differently, and so I'm going to seek out the care that I need. I'm going to work to do whatever is necessary to have a different kind of relationship with my children and accept humility, knowing that that's really what's going to lead to redemption and to healing, not me just having a big ego and just pushing through. Um, And so that is just kind of a foretaste of what I talk about throughout the book of how those difficult childhood experiences change how we see our relationships and how we approach them. Yeah, it's uh it's really it's so good. You actually teach us how to do the work. Um and I appreciate that. Uh you've you've done the work, you're doing the work and you're teaching us how to do the work. And so 
Um, I appreciate that. I, I want to talk uh, with you, have you unpack the difference between a normal relationship mm. and a healthy relationship. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I think, you know, we imagine that we want normal relationships, but that's not really true. That's right. You know, normal is relative. It's relative to what our experience has been. And uh, growing up in the context that I did, I knew that what I was in wasn't, quote, normal in the sense that when I would go over to friends' houses as a child, their home life from my you know observation of it was very different from mine. Um, and so there was what I saw, but again, that's relative. And so I think I drew on what I saw on TV as normal, what I read in books, what I saw from friends. But at the end of the day, when we go to friends' houses as children, what we're observing is just the surface. It's the image that they're projecting. And so we don't know if that's healthy or not. We don't know if that's good. And so I talked through in the book about how that we should be pursuing not normal but healthy And one of the ways that our difficult childhoods can actually prepare us for healthy relationships is we're not blinded by what is normal. We know what we grew up in wasn't healthy for the most part. And so we know, okay, I've got to pursue uh, a knowledge of healthy. How do you communicate well in a healthy relationship? How do you respond to one another in a healthy relationship? And so it actually gives us a head start to some degree because we know we just can't do what we saw and know that it's going to turn out healthy. We've got to be intentional about it. <laughs> so I think that one of the things, and you talk a lot uh, about um, the commitment that you and your wife made to counseling and entering counseling early and um, and continuing to be uh, in, you know, in counseling 12 years in, like I, there's, yeah. I think that when, um, when you say like, okay, we know that we, I don't want, I don't want to uh, duplicate the experience mm-hmm. that I had. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to duplicate it in my marriage. I don't want to duplicate it in my parenting, but all we know is what we've seen and experienced. And so, right. um, counseling is one approach. I'm wondering if, um, one of the appeals that we might make today is for people who are in healthy marriages and people who mm-hmm. do have healthy families might mm-hmm. really extend themselves to young, uh, to young people in the church yeah. and outside of the church to say, hey, could we come alongside you? Could we mentor? I mean, you know, maybe the word is mentoring, not counseling yeah, in some environments. Right. Like, right? Can you can yeah. you just make that appeal? Yeah. You know, I think so much of what I tell couples, especially that are kind of in the premarital stage or early in marriage, is, you know, when you come into marriage, it's not just about how much chemistry you have going in or how well you think you get along. Um, and you just hope that that will get you through, you know, a long marriage. But knowing that actually you can pick up tools that will Mm -hmm. make your marriage even more um, satisfying, uh, that will bring more peace to your relationship. And so having people in your life who can give you those tools, who can teach you those tools, who can say, hey, this is what this looked like in my marriage – makes it so much easier for us to implement those things. You know, one of the Proverbs talks about how uh, the the author writes about walking by and seeing this broken down, crumbled fence and, and realizing, you know, he could observe that and learn from it versus having to go through the pain of, oh man, when I am lazy, when I don't put forth the effort, things fall apart. I can learn without having to experience it the hard way. And so I really just encourage couples to find a couple that is doing marriage the way that you want your marriage to look and ask them, hey, can we just 
connect with you? Can we build a relationship with you? Can we learn from you so that one day we can have what you guys have? I um I really appreciated the uh, in the chapter on approval seeking. I loved the tools that you outline, um, and I wanted to maybe just start with um, identify your anxiety zones. Mm. Um, and then I loved, I loved, loved where you landed us, which was you know the realm of enthusiasm, where we do mm. things because we love to do them, because we're uniquely mm-hmm. created to do them, and because it benefits yeah. those around us when we do them. Um, I wanna, I wanna not live. Uh, in my anxiety zones, and I want to live in the realm of enthusiasm. Yes. Yeah, you know, our anxiety zones, I think that was one of the things that was so helpful for me was naming, okay, when are the moments that I feel the most anxiety? When do I feel the most pressure to perform and to put on an appearance and to meet everyone's expectations? And being able to name those allow us to then be able to see, okay, what does it look like for me to, to step into these moments and not feel that? Or to name in this moment, I feel a pressure to perform and I don't have to, and to pull back on that. But then the realm of enthusiasm, I think is so, it was such a helpful and kind of moment of epiphany for me because the areas where we feel this pressure to perform are often the areas that we actually really are good at. We have unique gifting and strength in those. But over time, they have become so entangled with our identity and our sense of value that now they are the way in which we prove that we are worthy of approval or prove Mm -hmm. that we're worthy of others' attention. And so this idea of the realm of enthusiasm is the idea of how do we take the data of the realm of performance and into this area where we just do it because we love to do it, not because of any value it's going to give us, not because of any approval it's going to gain us, but simply because it gives us life to do them. So the realm of enthusiasm is just we do this because we love it and it gives us life. So good. All right. You are um, you are listening to Ike Miller. The book is Good Baggage, How Your Difficult Childhood Prepared You for Healthy Relationships. It's incredibly redemptive. It includes a lot of tools. Um, and so if you're saying to yourself, I could really use some help with that, and I would love to have a copy of that book. We are giving away copies today. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing For the copies we have on hand, we're going to continue our conversation with Ike here in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. 150 million people, 150 million people actively use one particular app every month in the United States of America. I want that to be the Faith Radio app. How about you? If you're wondering how you could be encouraged in your faith at any time, anywhere, well, I got good news for you. There's literally an app for that. You can listen to Faith Radio live, any show on demand, no matter where you are at any time of the day or night. Download the free Faith Radio app right now. It's super easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. Let's connect faith to life. When you think about uh, the way in which you grew up, there are probably some wonderful, wonderful memories, and then there are some, you know, dysfunctional realities as well. And so we're talking about um, 
some of the traits that we developed as children, learning that we did along the way, not from books, but from relationships and how those serve us now. And some of those things we need to heal from and others of them we need to um, see redeemed and transformed so that they can become good baggage how your difficult childhood prepared you for healthy relationships. Ike Miller is the author. He's also, you know, I would say the the main like the main subject matter character cuz he just allows us to look at his life as an exemplar um in all of this throughout the book. So Ike, um let's talk about some of the traits that mm-hmm. we might have developed as children that actually do help us form healthy relationships now. Yeah, you know, so much of what I talk about in the book are these coping mechanisms that we developed in our childhood or even as adults in unhealthy relationships to help us survive a relationship, whether physically or just mentally and emotionally. And those are things that continue to function in other relationships outside of that. That's why we call them baggage, right? It's because we carry those into relationships where they don't belong anymore. And so they work against us. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is actually say, okay, those things worked to help us at one point. How do we learn how to use them in other relationships that are of a different sort? And so uh, just an easy kind of example to, to get us started on that is the way that Growing up in the environment I did where my father had alcoholism, you know, you walked into every room sort of assessing the emotional climate of the room. You know, Mm -hmm. is is everyone happy or somebody angry? Is it safe for me to be here? Do I need to get out of here? And so now as an adult, a lot of the rooms that we walk into, we're immediately kind of, okay, what's the emotional climate of the room? How's everybody feeling? Is anybody upset with me? And the way that works against us is we will look at someone who is upset and assume, oh, I must be responsible for that, so I need to fix it. And so we take Mm. on responsibility for people's emotions that are not ours to fix. So that's how it works against us. But the way that we can use that for good is to see that, say, for example, with my team at at my office, I can walk into a room and see, okay, you know, I think there's some things that we need to talk about before we get even into the business of the day. It looks like some things that are heavy. Let's just open that up and talk about it. And so it creates great space for communication. Another thing that we we develop in our childhood uh, or in difficult relationships is this this need to make everything okay. We got to fix it. It's our responsibility. And so some of us come out of these dysfunctional relationships with this incredible sense of responsibility. And that works against us again, because we take responsibility for things that aren't ours to be responsible for. And so we find ourselves overcome with anxiety, or we find ourselves uh, consumed with perfectionism. And so it actually does detriment to us and to our relationships. But if we can, again, name those anxiety zones, if we can name the things that we're taking responsibility for that aren't ours and step back from that, that desire to be responsible for others can still be a gift to others as long as we don't take it to the extreme. One of the invitations that uh, Ike, I think I want to extend to each person today is it doesn't really matter how relatively good you think your upbringing was there. um, There is something for you here because none of us were raised by perfect parents. We just, we just weren't. Um, And so, you know, even if you, you can't, you know, on that list of like adverse childhood experiences, just say hypothetically, you don't have any, like, let's say you go through that whole list and you're like, I don't have any of those. That still doesn't mean 
that there's not work for you to do um, in terms of um, uh, being a healthy person who engages in healthy relationships. And in all likelihood, the person or people with whom you are now trying to relate um, Mm -hmm. did grow up with some adverse childhood experiences and do do have some places and spaces where they are bringing into the relationship, um, not just experiences, Mm -hmm. but but tools like tools that yeah. served them well, survival yeah. skills and coping skills served them well in those relationships. And they're bringing those with them into the relationship they have with you. So this is actually Great. really good learning um, for each of us and all of us. Again, we're giving away copies today of Good Baggage. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter that drawing. Um, one of the things that you that you touch on and, and deal with um, is this this conversation about theology because theology can both help and hurt us when we're trying to heal from um, specific difficulties in our childhood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as I've worked through this for myself and having conversations with a lot of folks, I think that there are things that people wrestle with as a result of what they went through and how they react to others and respond in situations that already invoke a lot of shame in them. But when you add on top of that, this notion of um, sin as this guilt inducing or guilt causing reality, then not only are we sinning against our fellow humans, but now we have added on top of that, you have offended God with your action. And one of the things that I try to do in the book in talking about theology is say, let's step back for a moment and let's say and understand that, yes, there is sin that we do out of disobedience to God. But there's also things that we do, not because we are rebellious against God, but because other people have hurt us and we are hurting others out of that. And so, yes, there is a place for us understanding that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to take away the punishment that we deserve, but that we also need to develop an understanding that a part of what Jesus also did was He came to heal us, that He came to heal us of the brokenness done to us. And I love in the New Testament where it talks about, you know, whenever it uses the word that Jesus saved someone or someone was saved— the same word is actually used in context where it talks about Jesus healing someone. And even in our notion of salvation, we've got that word of salve, of this healing ointment that is placed on our wounds. And to be able to say, okay, some of our our sin, yes, deserves punishment, but some of our sin just needs healing. And we need to place that healing ointment on it that that Jesus gives us. Um, okay, I'd be remiss if um, I didn't at some point reveal that your wife is kind of famous in her own right among our <laughs> listeners. So um, tell people who you're married to. Yes, yeah, so my wife is Sharon Hottie Miller. She has uh, three books out there and uh, just incredibly gifted we uh, love writer her. and speaker. Let's just go ahead yeah. and say we love you in part because we love her and obviously she loves you. So there you go. Yes, yes. And so she's good. been on her own journey with this, and she's been incredible. She has, she's been such a gift to me, too. So I understand your love for her. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much, Ike, for um, the work you've been doing, for the family you're raising, for um, the witness and testimony of your life and marriage and ministry. And thank you for the book, and thank you for the conversation. Yeah. Of course. Thanks for having me on.
Absolutely. That's Ike Miller. The book is Good Baggage, How Your Difficult Childhood Prepared You for Healthy Relationships. We've got copies to give away. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter that drawing. Um, Facing the past, allowing God to redeem us from the sins that brought us to this point. Um, But, you know, we don't live there. My mom um, is fond of saying, you cannot land on the runway behind you. I mean, so yes, it's absolutely important to look into that rearview mirror and understand um, the, the places and spaces and people and relationships that made us who we are and brought us to the place that we are now. Um, but we also don't live there. You were not meant to dwell in uh, the sins of the past, yours or others. You were meant to be renewed. And so let us uh, rejoice and be redeemed today. Thank you so much for this time together. We'll see you right back here tomorrow on Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.